This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Well, now, on the second week of, of the sermon series, we're on James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as the law, by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you are being you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, it's not an accident that we are here today. You have brought us here, all the different circumstances and our backgrounds and different things that have happened to lead us to this moment to have an encounter with you and your word. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would, you would lead this meeting, that you would speak to our hearts and that nothing I'm doing would get in the way of the work of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Some sins are considered bad by all people, and we don't even need really a Bible to tell us that some things are wrong. And then there are some things that, that if we didn't have them in the scriptures, we probably wouldn't think they're that big of a deal. For example, we know it's wrong to murder. You shall not murder. And we don't actually even need the Bible to tell us you shall not murder. We, we all universally, no matter what your, your background, your culture, your religion, we all know it's wrong to murder. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you shall not even hate your brother. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we might not think hate was that big of a deal. Oh, or for example, um, 
We all know it's wrong to commit adultery, to cheat on your spouse. Uh, You shall not commit adultery. We actually don't even need the Bible to tell us that. Intrinsically, we know that that's wrong to commit adultery. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he says something that if if he didn't say it, we, we might not know it's wrong. He says, you shouldn't even look at a woman lustfully. You shouldn't have sex outside of marriage or even look at a woman lustfully. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we might not know that that was that big of a deal. And again, the, one more example, the, the Bible says, you shall not steal. And again, we know it's wrong to steal. We don't even need the Bible to tell us it's wrong to steal. But then the Bible says, you shall not even covet, even have a, a longing desire for something that's not yours. And if that wasn't in the Bible, we probably wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. Well, today we're going to look at something that's one of those sins that is not very obvious. In fact, uh, if it wasn't in the Bible, we probably wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. Today we're going to look at the sin of favoritism. And maybe you're thinking, favoritism? Really? I got out of bed for this? <laughs> maybe, maybe you're thinking, you know, Pastor, I have some real things going on in my life. I, I have an addiction to, to drugs or alcohol or, or pornography or, or my finances are, are just a, a, a total mess right now or my relationships are to, in a total mess right now. I have these real deep doubts about, about God and I've come here to hear something important to change my life and you want to talk about favoritism? I even looked at different translations uh, to see if there was a a different way to to talk about this. And and most translations said favoritism. Some said partiality, which sounds even less interesting than favoritism. (laughs) I was walking with my wife last week and, and on our walk, she said, oh, what are you preaching this weekend? I said, I'm preaching on favoritism. And she says, a whole sermon? And so maybe you're wondering, why is this this big of a deal? Why do we need to talk about this? Why is it something we want to focus on? And so the question I want to answer in this message is, what's wrong with playing favorites? What's the big deal? We're continuing this sermon series, Faith Works. And uh, this sermon series is walking through a letter written by a man named James. And, And James' letter, it's one of my favorite letters or books in the whole Bible, because what James is really concerned about is he wants to make sure that our faith is not just head knowledge. It's not just something that we can get right on a quiz or on a test. He wants us to take our faith, the stuff we have in our heads and our hearts, and put it into action, to put it to work. He wants us to to see that what we believe needs to also change how we live. So that's why we called this sermon series Faith Works. Now, James is an interesting historical person uh, in the Bible. He's fascinating because I don't know if you knew this, but but James was actually Jesus's half-brother. That's right. Jesus had siblings. After Mary had Jesus, um, Mary and Joseph had other children. One of them was James. And then there's another book in the Bible. Jude was another half-brother of Jesus. And so James would have been raised in the same household as Jesus. And what's interesting about James is while Jesus was carrying out his ministry, he did not believe his brother was the Messiah, which is understandable. If your brother went around saying, I'm the son of God, you probably would be pretty skeptical 
But after Jesus rose from the dead, James became a follower of Jesus. And not just a believer in Jesus, James became the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. And not only did James become the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, he also was martyred for his faith. He was so convinced that his brother was the Messiah, he was willing to lay down his life for his faith. And so he was somebody who put his faith in action. And that's what he's writing about here. So this letter, it begins by saying um, he's writing to the the 12 tribes of Israel scattered throughout the world. Another way of saying um, he's writing to Jewish Christians all throughout the world, and he wants them to put their faith into action. And so this is what it says in the opening uh, line of the second chapter of his letter. It says, my brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So he calls uh, the hearers of this letter his, his fellow brothers and sisters. They're, 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 they have the same faith. They're, they're the family of God. He says, you have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now to a Jewish Christian, all of these words would have a pretty heavy significance. The word glory for a Jewish Christian, again, that's his audience. He's written to Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians would have been raised in the the Old Testament scriptures. And when they would hear the word glory, they would think about the glory of the Lord, the fiery presence of God that came down on Mount Sinai and met met with Moses in the burning bush. And then that same glory of the Lord came down again on Mount Sinai uh, after Moses led them out of Egyptian slavery. And then that fiery presence of God, the glory of God came down on the tabernacle when Moses set up the tabernacle. And then God's fiery presence came down um, when Solomon set up the temple, that God, this, this, the, he, he revealed himself in this fiery presence, this glory of the Lord, it's called. And now James is saying that glory of the Lord, the fiery presence of God is revealed in Jesus. He showed that on the Mount of Transfiguration, this glorious presence. And he's the glorious Lord. To a Jewish uh, Christian, they would hear that word Lord and they would think about the Old Testament name of the Lord, the Hebrew name, Yahweh. Yahweh uh, was when God revealed his name to to Moses and said, I'm Yahweh, the Lord. And And that word means he is who he is. That never changing God who's always the same. And so James is saying, that glorious Yahweh is found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, that's an interesting name just in itself. Jesus um, is the Greek way of saying Joshua or Hosea. That's how you would say it in Hebrew. And that word Joshua or Hosea, it means the Lord saves. So Jesus' very own name means the Lord saves. And finally, the Christ Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, Christ is a title. It's the Greek way of saying a Hebrew term, Messiah, which means anointed one. And the, the whole 
Old Testament, the Hebrews were always waiting for the the Messiah, the anointed one. And so what he's saying here is, if you are a believer in the glory of the Lord, the glorious Lord, the Yahweh, the, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, you believe in Jesus, you look to him as the true God. If you hold on to that faith, you gotta let go of favoritism. If you wanna put your faith into action, You say you believe in this beautiful, amazing, you have this incredible theological categories for Jesus, Um, all these Old Testament rich theological terms. You, You have this rich faith. You have to put your faith into action. You have to do something with it. And the way you put your faith in action is no more plain favorites. What would that look like? He gives an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes, old clothes, comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he's describing a meeting, literally, a, he says, a synagogue or the gathering of the church. And he says, you're gathering the church and two people come in. One of them is dressed really nice and one of them is dressed in old shabby clothes. And he says, you are tempted to make a judgment about them, that this person is worth your time, that, that looks better and, and is more affluent and is more put together, that that person is worth more than the person who doesn't seem to be dressed as nice. And he says, when you do that, you're discriminating. You're discriminating with evil thoughts. Now, what would this look like here at our church? I mean, this could happen uh, right in our Victory Cafe, that that some people come in, and and maybe you don't even feel yourself doing this. It happens almost unconsciously, but you find yourself maybe even neglecting or not even paying attention to somebody that looks different than you or dresses different than you or, or maybe doesn't seem to be the same kind of person as you. And you gravitate to somebody else and you, and you, you welcome one and you kind of just walk past another. Or, or maybe this could happen. Um, you find yourself at the grocery store and you're in the grocery aisle and you start to look at what somebody has in their, their grocery cart in front of you. And you start to make all these uh, assessments or judgments about what they're buying and who they are and what kind of person they are and what kind of value that person has. And you make all of these moment by moment judgments. Or you find yourself walking in the neighborhood and you see what your neighbor's doing or what they're doing to their yard or, or what they've done. Do you see that favoritism or these assessments are a moment-by-moment act? I mean, this is so deeply connected to our faith because it's, it's, it's how we judge people moment by moment by moment, how we look at whoever is walking in front of us, whoever is, is, is that we're interacting with. We have a choice. How are we going to judge them? How are we going to put a value on them? It happens moment by moment. And so often we get it wrong. We play favorites. We make value judgments. And why is it such a big deal? What's wrong with that? Well, James goes on to explain. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. So he says, listen, my brothers and sisters, think about some of the people who have the strongest faith that you know. Some of the people who have the strongest faith that you know are not the most affluent. They're not the richest. They're not the most well-known. A lot of times they're they're marginalized in society. Uh, They're neglected. They're never going to be on a billboard. They're never going to be well-known by other people. And yet when you talk to them, they have the most simple, sincere, strong faith. And it shows that that's the kind of person that God has chosen. He chose them. And we see this literally in the life of Jesus. Jesus is on a mission to save the world. And let me ask you, if you're about to save the world as your mission, who do you pick on your team? I mean, wouldn't you go to some of the most talented people or most well-known people? Wouldn't you go to maybe uh, go to a kingdom and a palace who who has influence over other nations? Or or maybe go to the the synagogues or the temple or universities to find the most intelligent people? Or go to the the rich neighborhoods to find the, the most powerful people? But Jesus shows up and he goes to the backwoods territory of Galilee, walks along the side of the the Sea of Galilee, and picks up a few no-name fishermen, uneducated fishermen, and that's the team he picks to save the world. Now, why does he do that? I think one of the reasons that God seems to choose the no-names, the marginalized, the poor, is to upset our whole value system of how we look at people. Now, it's only natural that if you're starting a basketball team that you would pick the guy who's 6'10 and can run fast and is athletic. That person would fill the role on your basketball team. It only makes sense that if you're starting a company and you need a salesman, you want to get somebody who has the gift of of being able to talk and carry in a conversation. It only makes sense that if you're, you're starting a, a, you know, an electric company that, that you're going to find somebody who's been trained, an electrician, to work for your company. And that makes sense that we choose people based on the roles and the gifts and the talents they have. But if that's all we see in people, we're making value judgments that are sinful. We're playing favorites. You see, uh, if we didn't have the scriptures, we might not know this. Um, You just look at people and it makes sense that you would judge them based on what they can do and their performance and their abilities and their appearance. That would make sense if that's all we had. But the scriptures have told us something that, again, if we didn't have the scriptures, we probably wouldn't know this, that every human being is a creature that was created by God. That at the baseline, humans, human beings are not tools for you to use to accomplish your own goals. Human beings are not machinery to use to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. Human beings are not um, just puppets for you to, to play with or to use to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Human beings were created 
by God. They're made in the image of God. And that means no matter what their performance is, what their talents are, what their mental capabilities are, what's in their bank account, they all have intrinsic value. And you put your faith in action when you value people by who made them moment by moment, not by their outward appearance. I remember a few years ago, I was walking through a, a, an art museum and I don't know much about art, but I was trying to appreciate this art museum and just kind of walking p- past these paintings. Like, oh, that one looks nice and that one looks nice. And saw one that didn't seem to be that important. And I kind of glanced at it, moved on and someone stopped me. They told me to look at this painting. And they said, don't you know this little art museum? That was painted by Vincent van Gogh. And I had to stop. And all of a sudden, because uh, in this little tiny art museum, they had this, this, this painting that had incalculable worth because of the painter, because of the artist. There was nothing special about the type of paint that he used. And, and to be honest, I don't know, does that look like anything special? Not, not, it doesn't look special to me. But because of the author and the artist, it is special. And that's how we have to look at people. We, we, we might not see what's so special about somebody. We might not see what, what's so great about somebody, but we look at people based on the artist that made them. We look at them based on the author that's writing their story. We look at their value because of how they, who made them. Also, uh, I remember years ago, I don't know if this is even on anymore, but I remember watching the Antique Roadshow. Did you ever watch the Antique Roadshow? Is that even on anymore on PBS? Uh, they, you know, people would pull out junk from their grandma's attic, like a tea set, and, and, and they, would, they would put this in front of somebody and they, the, they would assess how much somebody would pay for this junk out of somebody's attic. And they would say, this tea set's worth thousands of dollars that someone actually would pay for this. And that's why it's worth that, because someone thinks that it's worth something. Well, think about this. Your and, and every person you run into has incalculable value, not just because of their artist who made them, but what God was willing to pay for. He paid for you and for every single person you run into, whether they believe it or not, with his own blood. And so that gives us an accurate assessment, an accurate value judgment on how we treat them. So how are we supposed to treat everybody? What is that? What's the application? How do we treat people? Well, James goes on, verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Sometimes this is called the golden rule. Uh, Because it kind of applies as basic morality across um, all religions. But James calls it the royal law. And I think what he means by that is he believes that his half-brother Jesus is king of kings. And in Jesus' kingdom, there's one law. There's one overarching principle that that guides everything they do. I remember I had a teacher back in, I don't know, when I was in grade school, Mr. Eichmeyer, and he came in and he, I remember him subbing one day in our lower grades. And he said, I have one rule in this classroom. You can do whatever you want. You just can't hurt someone else's education. It was a one rule that kind of guided the whole class. And that, that's what 
James is saying that Jesus has one law in his kingdom. It's not a bunch of laws, but in Jesus' royal kingdom, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the kingdom of God, there's one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems very simple at first, but then he goes on to make this application. But if you show favoritism, if you're making those value judgments, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. That's who you become. If you show favoritism, you're breaking the law. And you might think, well, okay, maybe in this one area I struggle, I, I, I play favorites, I make value judgments, I see somebody in the store, I see some in the neighborhood, I make a value judgment, uh, I neglect some people, okay. But I have all these other things that I follow. Well, James goes on to say that like, following Jesus and following this royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself is like a, it's like a chain. They're all linked together. All of God's commands are kind of linked together. He says this, whoever keeps the whole law, you're keeping all these other things, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You miss this part, you're missing the whole thing. Favoritism is a big deal. It's the way we put our faith into practice, moment by moment. Now you might be thinking, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting an F in for favoritism, but I'm getting an A in generosity. And, and yeah, maybe I'm getting an F for favoritism. This is something I struggle, but I'm getting a B in Bible reading. I read my Bible every day. James says that God does not grade on a curve. That's not how he looks at things. In fact, he goes on, and this would be funny if it wasn't so serious. He says, For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So saying, yeah, I do good in other areas, but I don't really, I struggle with favoritism, but I don't really worry about that. That's like somebody saying, I would never cheat on my wife. I might kill her, but I would never cheat on her. And that's what he's saying. You can't parse up your faith. This is an area worth focusing on. This is an area worth being intentional on. This is a place that we can put our faith to work. And so our opening question, what's wrong with playing favorites? God plays no favorites. He loves all those he has made. And if we don't love somebody, someone that he has made, if we don't see the value in someone that he has made, we're sinning against our maker. On the other hand, Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, when you see value in the least of these, you're doing it for me. And so James concludes this whole section of scripture. He says, so speak and act at those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, that royal law. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we don't show mercy, if we don't, um, if we don't assess people accurately, see the value in every human being, we don't show them mercy it says something about our hearts and we will face judgment for that. And so he says, let mercy triumph over judgment. Well, where are we going to learn this mercy from? Where are we going to learn how to be merciful, to treat people value, with, with value? We learn from Jesus. 
See, thank God that Jesus didn't play favorites, that he didn't make value judgments with us. Because compared to God, when he looks at us, we have nothing to offer God, that he would need anything for us. We can't barter our way to God's presence. We can't make up for the things that we've done. We can't somehow... Um, yeah, make up for, for the sins that we've committed in the past. We, there's nothing we can do to kind of make up our own value, to make God care about us or make him love us or make, uh, make him forgive us. He looked at us with mercy. Seeing that without him, we had no value on our own. He saw the trouble that we were in, that we couldn't get out of our own way, that we can't stop being selfish and self-centered. And he showed mercy on us. And he treated us as if we were worth incredible value, every single one of us. And he lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. And he did that for everyone. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He didn't just die for a certain group of people or a certain background or someone with certain talents. He died for everyone, including you. And so that's what governs our mercy. We love because he first loved us. So what, what do we do? How do we put this into practice practically? What would be the opposite of favoritism? What would it look like to be, to be doing the opposite of playing favorites? Well, I think radical, generous hospitality to all people. We have a, a core value here at, at, at Victory when we did kind of our... Um, core values and our mission and vision years ago, we, we said one of the core values that we really see here and want to hold on to here is welcoming. And so as a leadership team and as a staff, we talk about welcoming at, at, at many of our meetings. We want to kind of use welcoming as kind of the lens that we do all the things that we do here. And so Pastor Bill will greet people with the greeters outside and we greet people in here. We want to put together, um, you know, a, Victory Cafe, and we want to use language here from the stage. It's going to be welcoming, that people will understand. And, and we don't always get this right. And there are probably times where I haven't been welcoming, haven't lived up to this core value, but it's something we keep coming back to as a core value. But we don't just want this to be a core value of our leadership team or our staff. We pray that it's a core value of our congregation, of all of us, that, that we share this together instead of playing favorites that we're welcoming to all people. And so we do that in the beginning of the service, you know, the introvert's favorite part of the worship service where we make everybody stand up and greet one another, right? And it might seem like just a ritual that we do, that, that just a practice we do, but, but what we're hoping is you kind of get your, your hospitality welcome muscles moving, that you start to see the people around you and you see them as incredibly valuable and worth your time. And, and we hope that that little practice then spills over into the cafe that you would go sit with somebody or talk to somebody or, or greet somebody, see somebody that nobody else has seen, and that that would spill over into your workplace, that you would see people that nobody else has seen and you'd see the intrinsic value of the people around you. That would spill over into your neighborhoods and into your families, that we would put our faith into action in that moment-by-moment -moment practice. This could be Actually, one of the most important things that we could do to put our faith in action is to treat everybody with value that we run into. And so as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, here's how you can do it. Welcome all people in the name of Jesus Christ.
Welcome all people. You don't have to be friends with everybody. You don't have to like everybody, but you can love them. You can see their value. You can see the things that nobody else sees that, that whether they, they might have not have the talents that everybody else, they might have the influence, they might have not have the bank account, but you see in that person a masterpiece made by God, saved by God of incredible worth and value. And so it's going to happen today. You're going to walk out of here and, and you're going to bump into somebody that maybe is rich or affluent or respected or powerful. And then you're going to bump into somebody that nobody else is going to see, that maybe is poor, uneducated, marginalized, that nobody else sees as valuable in the world. And you're going to have a choice. Are you going to play favorites? Or are you going to see in each person, in both people, the incredible work of God? Jesus says, whatever you do for any of these people, you do for me. And so put your faith in action. Welcome all people of all backgrounds, of all different classes. Welcome them all in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would give us your mercy for all the times we didn't see the people that you placed in our lives as precious and wonderful and amazing creatures of your creation. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to love others as you have loved us. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Help us to put our faith in action in the moment-by-moment interactions that we have with one another. And when you do this in us and through us, we will give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.